Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In December of 2019, the movie Just Mercy was released. It tells the story of a man by the name of William McMillan, who for years sat on death row in an Alabama prison, allegedly having killed an 18-year-old girl in his town. It also tells the story of a young man from the Northeast, recent graduate from Harvard, who went south in hopes of helping people like Mr. McMillan, who were unjustly tried and were, in some cases, executed unjustly. As the story unfolds, we see how this brilliant young lawyer works diligently with the help of some people in the town. They were able to uncover evidence that showed, in fact, that this man, William McMillan, was innocent. Hence, the title, Just Mercy. It's a play on words, of course, but it raises the question, can justice and mercy stand together? Are justice and mercy compatible? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a passage in the book of 2 Peter as we continue our consideration of this passage regarding false teachers. I won't go into a rehearsal again of the traits of the false teachers, but certainly they were men who had little, if any, interest in the things of God. They were men who were leading people astray. And what the Bible teaches us in this passage in the book of 2 Peter is that there is a certainty to the presence and the activity of false teachers throughout the church age. It was true in Peter's day, and it's true also in our day. We're going to see stringent condemnations of these false teachers. And when we read this second chapter, it's very difficult to read because of the harshness that appears to be the focus. Peter himself, as we're going to see today, could hardly wait after he had given examples of people who were ungodly and unrighteous and who experienced the raw justice of God as a result of their refusal to repent. We're going to see how he can hardly wait to talk about the grace of God and the mercy of God. So let's dive right in to this passage in 2 Peter. And we're going to begin with the last part of verse 3 of chapter 2. And we're going to read through the first part of verse 10 of that same chapter. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow along. The last part of verse 3 says, Their destruction, that is the false teachers, is not asleep. God hasn't gone asleep, is what this is saying. He is not unaware of the presence of false teachers and of the harm that they are bringing to the body of Christ and consequently and ultimately to the world itself. Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live godly, ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep 
the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Look again quickly at verse 9. The way Peter has given an if-then, a cause-and-effect argument. He begins by talking about the unrighteousness of mankind as a picture or example of the unrighteousness of the false teachers in question. And he talks about when he speaks of the unrighteousness of sinning angels, he speaks about their pride and their rebellion. When he gets to the antediluvians of Noah's day, those who lived before the flood came, he comments on their apathy and their disobedience. And then he comes to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and speaks of their sheer sensuality. He was really saying these are the characteristics of these false teachers. But it's not only the characteristic of false teachers. It is characteristic of people in every age. And so there is a relevance to our lives as we let the Holy Spirit scrutinize our hearts. But after he has emphasized the problems that existed in these three cities representative of the problems and the sins of the false teachers. He starts out, we would expect him to talk about the sureness of the judgment and justice of God upon them, wouldn't we? But surprisingly, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Let me pause here just a moment before I look as the people who were rescued from temptation, the godly they are called from temptation. The word temptation can equally well be translated by our, our word trial. Who rescues us, who follow him from our trials. Now, this does not say that he rescues them immediately. And when we get to the point of looking at these people, why don't we just go ahead and dive in and look at the people whom he rescued. If you will go back to verse five, look at what it says. The Lord did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now let's think about Noah for a moment. If we were to go back and we might as well Go back for a moment to Genesis chapter 6. If we were to look at Genesis 5, it's one of those passages that we find our eyes glossing over, just sort of glassing over when we look at this genealogy. But the genealogy is rather instructive. We know who the oldest man in the Bible was. Do you not know his name? Methuselah, right? And how long did he live? He lived 969 years. That's an incredibly long life. His name, interestingly, in Hebrew means when he is dead, it will come. If you do the calculation, it's not the simplest of calculations, but I looked at it last night to make sure I was right in my assumption. When you look at the cal calculation, Methuselah, who was the grandfather of Noah, Methuselah died, and in that year, the flood came. The precision of God's word is amazing. And here, Noah had preached. When you do the calculations again, you'll know there is a hundred-year gap between the time that Noah became a father and the death of Methuselah, his grandfather, and in the time that Noah became a father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it was then that he was assigned the responsibility of building an ark. We have no way of knowing if Noah had been a carpenter prior to that. The blueprint was given by God. An incredibly large undertaking for a whole army of men, much less a man and maybe the help of his three sons. But as he built that, the scripture says here in the book of 2 Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness. The book of Genesis makes no mention of that, but one can only surmise and properly that this man 
lived a life when he was ridiculed over and over again. People would mock him undoubtedly for doing what he did, call into question his sanity as he did what he did. And what did he did do in response? Well, he preached, he preached the Lord's word. He preached, I'm sure, repent for the judgment of God is near. Lest I forget it. Let me make note of what God says about himself. In the book of Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, the last verse, he says, I take no pleasure, listen, in the death of anyone who dies. Repent and live. This is the message of our God. He is a holy God. Be sure that he is going to bring judgment on the world and those people who are of it who do not repent. But he desires for us to repent and live. There's no real living apart from repenting of our selfishness and coming under the jurisdiction of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can think you're living, but you are badly fooled if you think so. Because it's nothing compared to the plan which God has for us. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And the phrase more abundantly is a mathematical term that Jesus uses. Always more than enough. It's a cornucopia of abundance in life. That's what we have in the relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah preached righteousness. For a hundred years. Do you think he got tired of waiting? We talk about the patience of Job. We talk about the great patience in the man we know as Abraham. But lo and behold, this man waited a hundred years. He grew during that time. The Lord took him out away, rescued him from trial. Look, you may be in a trial today in your life. But there's nobody in the room who's been steadfast for 100 years because I know how old you are. At least I know there's no one in the room who's 100. Sometimes it feels like you've been in trial for 1,000 years. I understand that because it's your trial and it's difficult. But look, if you know the Lord, the devil will come and try to trick you into thinking that he doesn't care about you. He's indifferent to you or else he doesn't have the power to deliver you from the situation in which you find yourselves badly tried. But the word of God is clear. No trial has seized you except what is common to man. And God is gonna give you a way out, not extract you immediately, but he's gonna see you through that trial. So we see this in Noah. Keep your place there, if you will. In the sixth chapter of Genesis, we'll be back there in a bit. Let's now go back and look at the mercy that he showed not only to Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and also to their wives, the eight of them, only eight people in the entire world. Can you imagine? Only eight people who had been steadfast. The whole world can be against you. Fortunately, we don't have the whole world against us. If God is for us, who can be against us is what the Bible says. Noah could say that with great integrity, couldn't he? But sometimes it may feel to you like it's just you against the world. But if you know Jesus Christ, he's with you and he's going to take you out. He's going to rescue you in some point from the trouble in which you find yourselves. He knows how to do it, but he also rescued Lot. Now let's read about that in verse seven. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Let me rehearse with you a moment the history of this man Lot. He was the nephew of Abraham. 
He had left with Abraham and Sarah. He had followed them and a man of means in his own right as he followed his uncle. And they went and they came into what was known as the promised land. And he and his uncle, they were so prosperous that their herds could no longer coexist. So they had a meeting and they decided we need to decide to go our separate ways, not because of tension that exists between us. Actually, those who kept their flocks were people who were at odds with each other, prompting this conversation. And Abraham took his nephew Lot up on a precipice where he could see down into the valley of the Jordan River and then everything else to the west as well and to the north and to the south. He said, nephew, you pick. You want the valley or nephew, you can have the mountains, your choice. And he was attracted, that is, Lot was attracted to what he saw. It was a verdant valley. It had the benefit of water. It would be like when you and I drive from Albuquerque southward. I love that drive, don't you, in the summer? And you can drive down through there and there's desert everywhere and then you look and you see the Rio and what do we see? There's greenery all up and down. That gives us something of a picture, maybe not quite the full picture, but he took that. And the scripture says he went down and he pitched his tent in, near the city of Sodom. The next time we run across him, he is in the city of Sodom. And then finally, in the 19th chapter, right before the demise of Sodom and Gomorrah, he is sitting in the gate. Do you know what it meant when it was said of someone in antiquity that he sat in the gate? It meant that he was in a position of authority and influence in that city. He sat with the other elders in the city and rendered judgments and gave wisdom. He went there and gradually moved toward living in the city. We don't know the heart of Lot as to what actually caused him to move that way. But we cannot blame him really because all of us at one point or another have been allured by the world, have we not? We have seen the beautiful things that are actually facsimiles of real beauty in the world and we've been drawn to them. But this text of scripture tells us Oddly, that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Now, there's no mystery as to how that would have oppressed this man, the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So let's go back again. In time, the book of Genesis, chapter 18, you may recall that Abraham had taken up his residence at the Oaks of Memory. And these oak trees were near what came to be known as Hebron. You may recall that Hebron was the place that David first established his monarchy. For the first seven years of his monarchy, his kingdom was centered in Hebron. Abraham, 99 years old, sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. He sees three figures moving toward his tent. Immediately, being the hospitable person that he was, he jumps up, he runs to meet the men. This is a 99-year-old running to meet these strangers. And he meets them and he says, come, your feet need to be washed. He calls them and they are under this shade of the oaks there and then he says, I'm going to get you some food to eat. He goes into the tent where Sarah was, and she was observing all this, eavesdropping on the conversation that was taking place between these three strangers and her husband. And he runs into her and says, hey, put together some bread. And then he leaves there. He goes to his servant who watches the livestock. He says, pick a choice calf out and slaughter and prepare it for food. We need to treat these guests well. 
In the course of waiting, the conversation continues between Abraham and these three strangers. As it turns out, two of them were angels and one was none other than the Lord himself. A pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ undoubtedly is what is called a Christophany by theologians. And as they talked, the Lord spoke to him and said, by this time next year, we're going to come back. And when we come back, you're going to have a son. Sarah overheard it. And what did she do? She laughed. Why did she laugh? Because she knew the condition of her own body at the age of 89. And she knew the condition of her own husband's body at the age of 99. And so there was no possibility, humanly speaking, with an emphasis upon humanly, but God had spoken. So these men were fed to angels and the Lord. And they say, we've got to go down into the valley. And we've got to make a visit to Sodom and Gomorrah because the cry of those cities has risen to heaven and we're responding to that cry. And they talked, the Lord spoke to the two other angels and probably Abraham was listening. And basically this is what the Lord said to the angels. He said, fellas, shall we tell Abraham about the imminent destruction of these cities? After all, he has been promised by me that he is going to be the father of a great nation, but also all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. Should we tell him? They were being sensitive to Abraham. They knew his nephew lived there. And as Abraham thought about this, he made an appeal to the Lord. He said, sir, if there could be 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare it? To which the Lord said, yes. He went on, he said, if there are 45, once more, yes. If there are 40, yes. If there are 30, yes. If there are 20, yes. If there are 10, and he was being so deferential toward the Lord. He was shy about even asking him because he was lowering the ante over and over and again. And he said, yes, if there are 10. But he stopped there. He had six people there that he had interest in. Not the least of whom was his nephew, Lot. Lot had a wife. Lot had two daughters. And they were engaged they were even described as being married because the custom was if you were engaged or betrothed, legally, technically, you were already married. So there were six. So he knew if he got down to 10, then his family was safe. What happened? Two angels went down into the city. They came about dusk, maybe in early night even. And when they arrived, they may have come through the gate and maybe this man Lot was observing what was happening. And as they came in, Lot said, won't you come and be my guest? He knew the nature of the inhabitants, the male inhabitants of the city. They were homosexual in their orientation. They preferred the strange flesh of a man as opposed to that of a woman. And so he was able to take them away and get them inside his house. Word traveled fast. All the male inhabitants of the city, the scripture says, came and they surrounded the house of Lot. And they demanded that he bring these two guests out to them. And then Lot said something that I can't even imagine some father saying. He said, look, I've got two daughters who have never known a man you can have them, take them in exchange for the lives of these two guests of mine. Well, about that time, one of the angels grabbed Lot and pulled him in and then simultaneously blinded all the male inhabitants of that city. And then instructions were given to Lot, you've got to leave. Take your family with you. Don't look back. Give strict instructions that they're not to look back. Lot 
was literally, if you read the text in the 19th chapter of Genesis, literally they dragged him out. They took him by the hand and took him out. This man who had been oppressed by all that which was sensual that was going on that he had seen in any righteous person would have been. As they leave the town and they're making their way out, doing their best not to look back, his wife looked back. We know what happened to her. She turned into a pillar of salt. Salt was a medium of exchange. It was a medium of currency in that day. It was something extremely valuable. And she was focused on that material aspect and the comfort, probably the home that she and her husband had been unable to build there. And then what we know is that God sent fire and brimstone down and completely destroyed that place. So, rescue of Noah and his family, the rescue of Lot and his two daughters because the wife became a pillar of salt and the sons-in-law, when he went to talk to them, they thought he was just joking about the near destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we do see God shows mercy to the godly. This is our God. Remember what we read from Exodus 34? It says, the Lord God is a God of compassion and gracious, slow to anger. We see his slowness in the story of Noah, do we not? A hundred years he waited. If you were to study the book of Genesis chapter 15, where God was talking about how the descendants of Abraham were going to be enslaved for 400 years. And then after that would come the destruction of the Canaanite inhabitants, several different kinds of ites, Amorites, Hittites, all those different people. They would be destroyed. God waited 400 years for those people to repent. The pagan Canaanites, but they did not repent and he did show judgment upon them when Joshua led the forces of Israel into the nation and destroyed those people. So God shows mercy to the godly, but he exercises justice on the unrighteous. Let's go now and look at verse 4 of Second Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So God did not spare these angels. There's been a long standing debate as to the identity of these angels. Let's go back over to chapter six again in Genesis. I'm going to share with you one of the ideas, and this is the one that I adhere to. Verse 1 of Genesis 6 says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now let me stop here just a moment. The phrase sons of God is used three other times in the Old Testament. In the book of Job, Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. Each instance has to do with angels or fallen angels. Satan is among the sons of God. And what that would suggest is the possibility, I think, the reality that these angels who sinned were actually fallen angels. Another reason I say that, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, when time came to translate from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek for the dispersed Jews all over the Mediterranean world who had long since left their roots in Jerusalem and in Judea and Israel, they were no longer able to read or understand Hebrew because of the distancing that time and geography had created for them. So the Septuagint was translated. In every case where the sons of God appears in the Old Testament, as we would call it, they translated it with the term angels. That was their understanding about that. 
Then verse three says, the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever because he is all so is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Here's another reason. The Nephilim, they were the product of someone who was very able to sire a child who would be extremely tall and strong and the sons of men, daughters of men, excuse me. And the result was that they had this race of people known as the Nephilim. And that explains why they were the mighty men. Now remember, all these people were wiped out. You understand, this is right before the flood, sometime during that period leading up to the flood. They were all wiped out. If we were to go, we're not going to take time, but Jude is a book that is very closely akin to Second Peter because it addresses the whole matter of false teachers and the danger and evil of false teachers. But these two examples, this example of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah are put in the same closeness by Jude as Peter puts them here. So that's the idea that I'm going to suggest is the best solution to understanding who these were. And you might say, well, Mike, didn't Jesus say there is no marriage in heaven? I'm glad you're thinking with me, okay? There is no marriage in heaven. But it does not in any way indicate that we lose our identity when we go to heaven. I'm going to be a male when I get to heaven, and you're going to be a female if you're not a male on earth. That's the way it's going to be. And so what we need to understand is there is no relating on a sexual plane in heaven. People retain their identity as far as gender and other things as well. Whenever angels are referred to in the New Testament, always they are referred to as he. The word she was available, but he is used. With that having been said, what we do know is they sinned, didn't they? They definitely sinned in that foray they made and engaged the daughters of men. They sinned, and what happened to them? What was the outcome? The justice of God was exercised on them by, by their being cast into hell this is not the normal word for hell. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. Tartarus, which had its root really in Greek mythology. It was the darkest part of the underworld. And in this case, it's Christianized. I believe the mythology folks got it from the word of God, quite frankly. But nevertheless, what we know is that it was the place of darkness and torture and torment. Those angels were th who sinned were cast into hell, committed to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. Now, look back over in 1 Peter for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all the just, for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, so what we see here is that these fallen angels, if you will, these fallen sinful angels are in a holding tank, as it were, for the final judgment. And if you go to Revelation chapter 20, we'll see what their fate is, and Satan is included in that 
description, I believe. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 7. And when the thousand years, that would be the millennium, are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. His prison is Tartarus. He's there in this dark, gloomy place and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. Final conflagration between the forces of evil and the forces of Christ. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I would suggest that's where these angels are. God exercises judgment on them. Look again at the people in Noah's day. Let's look at verse 5. Read it one more time. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. All mankind was wiped out by that flood. Interestingly, the word flood, wherever it appears in the New Testament, listen to the way it sounds in the Greek language. Cataclysmus. Cataclysm. It was an incredible catastrophe and cataclysm. And then in 6, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, Dio Cassius, in describing what happened when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, he used this very language of their being reduced to ashes. That would be Pompeii and Herculaneum. They were reduced to ashes. They were buried. Archaeologists who have looked for the correct location of Sodom and Gomorrah have formed a consensus that it was on the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. Some of you have been to that area and you've been shown that possibly. And he made them, he made the inhabitants in that city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And the word translated having made is a word which means he made that example. It still is applicable today. It is true today. God will exercise judgment on the unrighteous. He shows mercy to the godly, but shows justice, exercises it on the unrighteous. Now let's look down again at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He's doing that with these angels. He's doing this for all mankind who does not know him. For years, I don't know why I missed it. I don't know when it dawned on me finally. But I kind of had the idea that only those in Christ are going to rise from the dead. Well, yes, we are. Praise the Lord. We're going to have a body like him when we do. When we come out of the grave, we're going to come out of the grave in our bodies, but ours are going to be glorified bodies, perfect bodies. But Jesus himself talks about this in the fifth chapter of John. I was reading in Acts, 24th chapter. I believe it's the 14th or 15th verse, somewhere along in there, just the last couple of days. And Paul preaching to Felix a Roman tribune. He talks about the judgment and how everyone's going to rise from the dead. Even the unrighteous will rise and they will be given their final judgment at that point. Look at verse 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now, you're going to have to stay with me here for just a couple more minutes, maybe like 10 more minutes. So go to Galatians. A couple is like 10 to me. You know that already. So let's go to Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment. What is the flesh? It's human personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. It's where we all go in our minds, with our mouths, and with our bodies in rebellion against God. It's in a sense... Sheer selfishness. 
And there is a very clear and withering description of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and he's going to give a series of words that speak of sexual immorality. Immorality is the first word. This is any kind of sexual immorality. It would include any kind of expression of sex on a physical level apart from the relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage is God's ordained institution, one man, one woman for life, for purposes of procreation and purpose of companionship within the context of that marriage, which includes the physical relationship, a vital part, the two shall become one flesh. It is God's will that we as married people who are in Christ, we give a picture in microcosm of the church. Jesus wants us to do that. Paul speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Perhaps you know that idolatry in Paul's day was largely, if not always, accompanied with some sort of sexual promiscuity. It was part of the worship of these false gods. Sorcery, the word sorcery, sounds like this in the original language. Pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy, pharmaceuticals from this word in Greek. And in sorcery, this would be witchcraft really, in biblical times, drugs were commonly used. And even to this day, a lot of what goes on in witchcraft has to do with drugs, doesn't it? Then he segues now in another direction. Enmities, this and these are more socially acceptable sins, obviously. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Well, that has to do with we don't get along with each other. We might not be guilty of that first group, but we may be very guilty of this second group. Paul leaves no stone uncovered and no group unscathed, actually, when he does this. And then... Verse 21, going along with those that I've just mentioned, envying, and then he talks about drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Read this list. Occasionally, I need to go back over this list because these are not traits of a man or a woman who are led by the Spirit of God, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, not ongoing traits. We need to be aware of that. Now I'd like to ask you to turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses... Nine through eleven. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, this would be people exercising their sexuality outside the context of marriage, nor idolaters. We've already talked about that. Some of your translations actually translate that the greedy. That's a good interpretation of the word. Nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. This has to do with both the active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. All these people who live a lifestyle like this are kidding themselves if they think that they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Their bodies are not their own. A little later in this passage of Scripture, look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We don't belong to ourselves. One of the characteristics we've seen about the false teachers that Peter speaks about is that they marginalize the teaching on the fact that they had been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who knew Christ, and they belonged to him. Now let's go back to verse 11. This is very important. I love this. And such were some of you. Notice the past tense. But you were washed. What does that mean? We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. If you know Jesus, He comes and He gives you His life in exchange for your death spiritually. He was condemned for you and for me in order that we could be clean and right with God. We couldn't do anything to wash ourselves. We were incapable of washing ourselves, but God did it. You were sanctified. That means set apart. You were justified. That means made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Look, sin separates us from the Lord. And the Lord himself became sin on our behalf and took the full punishment of God for our sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now go to Romans 3. This will be the last passage we'll look at today. Romans 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The plan of salvation is in the Old Testament is what that's saying. And even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. This door is open, not just to Jews, to Gentiles, not to just good people, but all people, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that what the next verse says? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might say, well, I'm, I'm not sexually immoral. Well, have you ever been angry and shown outburst of anger? Have you ever clicked up against others in the body of Christ? Read that list in Galatians 5. Read this list that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 24. Being justified, that means being made right by God as a gift. Your salvation is a gift. How? By God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were alienated from God by our sin. And what did God do? He sent His only begotten Son. And He made Him a propitiation for our sin. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Let's just read a little further. Verse 25. This is awesome. Please, please listen carefully. Whom God, talking about Jesus, displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Jesus became the sacrifice you could never make, nor could I, to save us from our sexual sin, to save us from our social sin, to save us from any kind of sin you could ever say or put a label on. That's what cost Christ his life, and he did it willingly. And the Father gave him Gladly, because he loves us. Do you understand? Our God is a just God. And look what he says about how he retains his justice while at the same time offering you and me the possibility of having our sins wiped clean. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, not ours. We have no righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's what Paul has written just a little earlier in this chapter. Because in, listen, listen, listen. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, yes. He's the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But the scripture says, does it not? That he 
is abounding in mercy. And he wants us to be saved. He went to the greatest extreme. There's no word that we could use to describe the extreme to which he went in order to secure our salvation through the Son of God and his death for us so that we could have this eternal life. He's just and the justifier. You know what I use as a synonym for justifier? The mercy giver. Jesus became the mercy seat in effect because that's what the word propitiation means in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, when those translators were translating the mercy seat where the atonement blood was placed once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. That is the same word that they use, this word used for Jesus. Yes, just mercy. They are compatible. If sheer justice was all there was, we would be oppressed and depressed, if not extinct. If unlimited mercy were the case, we would be cloistered somewhere because we'd be afraid somebody's gonna kill us because they have the freedom to do whatever they want. There are no restrictions upon their lives. We would live in a life that would be horrible and we would probably be extinct. But thank God that he is this God who is both just and the justifier. And he calls us all to himself. Lord, this gospel is amazing. Your patience is amazing, Lord. And I pray for someone who's here today who knows that she or he is not in your family because he or she has not yielded herself or himself to you fully. Please, Lord, work in her heart and his heart, work in all of our hearts to help us to know that you are a holy God and we know you say to us, be holy for I'm holy. Lord, we want to be more holy, but we at the same time want to be people of mercy, not haranguing and railing on people who are in sin, but loving them as you did, loving them enough to tell them the truth because we know the truth is the only thing that sets people free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.